What they do. They smile in your face all the time. They want to take your place. They whack niggas. Whack niggas. They smile in your face all the time. They want to take your place. They whack niggas. Whack niggas. Hey, welcome to episode 23 of The Bleezy Show. I'm your host, Blair Fields. So, today, topic or topics, I should say. Um, Obviously, I need to get into the whole Maya Angelou being placed on the U.S. quarter. That's the first thing I'm going to cover. But I'm also going to discuss the, you know, the current state of our school systems in terms of children not being able to attend classes, teachers going on strike. And the last thing I'm going to discuss is uh, toxic masculinity in our society and how we should redefine it. So to kick off the pod, I'm going to talk about the news that broke this week of Maya Angelou being placed on the U.S. quarter. For those of you who are younger, uh, I'm going to let you guys know who Maya Angelou is, um, just to give you guys a breakdown of her importance and significance. So Maya Angelou, beloved poet, amazing activist, even better author, a philanthropist, an influencer, not like the influencers you guys have nowadays, but a real influencer, a very well-accomplished scholar, very, very educated. Uh, She has shaped the way many Black women in this country view themselves in a positive manner. Many Black women uh, from that era are making the moves that they're making today based off what she was doing at that time and later in her life. And just the way she spoke, the way she wrote, the way she carried herself, her charisma uh, was breathtaking. Her transparency to exude, you know, information every time you saw her. If you ever have a chance, there are dozens of interviews you can find on the internet. But I don't think any of those interviews do her justice of what she really represented and who she really was. And because I didn't grow up in the era where Maya Angelou was at her peak, I will probably never truly understand her impact of what she really did uh, for those our older people and everything like that. But I've seen the things she done. Um, she's nothing short of a legend, very legendary, and she deserves every accomplishment that she has earned and everything that is coming her way still. With all that being said, though, um, if I had to put any black woman on in U.S. history on currency, Maya Angelou will still be top tier. I would obviously have Rosa Parks up there, Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells, Sojuna Truth, maybe even Madam C.J. Walker. But I say all that because even though I love the news of a black woman being minted on the U.S. quarter, I hate the fact that this is somehow supposed to be perceived as a win for black people. And when I first saw the news, I'm not going to lie, I was a little pissed. Because I don't think, you know, putting a black face on the currency changes our relationship with wealth inequality in this country. And I was annoyed seeing so many black people uh, celebrate and repost and saying, finally, they got one of us on the currency. But that's not the goal. You know, I have uh, to have our face on the currency should never be the goal. Like we should try to acquire more currency as a community so we aren't in the current predicaments that we find ourselves in and help setting up our future generations 
for you know more economic stability. And just to give you guys some background information, if you didn't know, uh, black people or African Americans, we make up 13% of the US population. Yet we have less than 5% of the total wealth in the country. So think about that. We're 13% of the population, and yet we have less than 5% of the wealth. So just to illustrate it even more, uh, so that way you guys could get a picture in your head and really comprehend the audacity of what I just said, if I put 100 plates of food on a giant table and those 100 plates represent all the money in America, right? And let's say I have 100 people standing around the table and the 100 people represent the demographic of America. So 60%, roughly 60% of the people standing around the table would be Caucasian people, right? So currently Caucasians have 85% of the wealth in the country. So that means they would have 85 of the plates, yet there's only like 60 of them. Uh, yet black people, you know, will represent 13 of the 100 in the room. We would only have five plates of food. So really think about that. Could you imagine trying to feed 13 people with five plates of food? Niggas is going to be starving. So even though I am proud of Maya Angelou post-mortem becoming the first black face on a coin, I can't help but think about the reality of how does this change our current economic situation. And the crisis that we're living in really isn't one of representation, but one of monetization. So black people today, even though we have more representation than we ever could imagine in decades and centuries ago, I am appreciative of every opportunity one of us get. And I love it when I see one of us make the opportunity to excel in ways we couldn't fathom for ourselves. But what is lost and um, in that is like not only just being happy of having the opportunity, but capitalizing on it. So, you know, my friends always tell, ask me, if you were CEO of your company, what changes would you make? The easy answer that everybody wants to hear is, well, I would put more black people in positions of power. That's the easiest answer I could give. And no one's going to argue with my decision on that. But the real answer I would really give is, like, yo, I'm trying to milk this cow until the udders are swollen. Because if I'm being honest, when black people are usually hired in these high positions of power, we're not at the top that long. So I could put as many black people as I want in power. The shelf life of that power is not as extensive as it is with our counterparts. And obviously we have a problem with a lot of black men being in power in this country. And you have to put yourself in a position where you're financially free. And if they ever asked me to step down, hypothetically, if I was CEO, that wouldn't affect me economically. Because you could lose power overnight. Right. Like we always see it, especially in this era, one day you're the head of a company the next day because of a bad tweet or a post you did or something that was ill advised. You could lose that position like that. And one thing they can't take away from you once you're stripped of that power is the money you made. And if you guys know, I'm a huge, huge locks fan, the locks. Right. And we all know the the anthem money, power, respect. And what Lil' Kim says at the beginning of the song, first you get the money, then you get the motherfucking power. After that, 
you're going to get the motherfucking respect because niggas got to respect you. Right? So that's the one thing I'm really just trying to focus on is just making sure financially stable. That way we could just, you know, be able to aid each other when we do lose like these jobs because these jobs ain't going to have us around forever. Like we're, like I said, uh, a friend of action helps, but they just don't hire you first. They fire you first. So just keep that in mind. And also I was just thinking, wasn't Harriet Tubman supposed to be on the $20 bill like four years ago? What happened with that? I don't know if anyone following up with that, but all in all, I just don't want to celebrate the small wins. I love Maya Angelou. She has helped me personally become a better poet, a better thinker, to show more compassion for women, especially black women, and overall just a better human being. And I don't want to take away this moment or rain on her parade because she deserves every accolade that comes her way still. But part of me still realizes that the challenges we face as a community are way more than just trying to get our faces on the currency. And long term, I hope, I don't care if it's all black people on the money. If we don't have any money, it's not going to help us in the long run. All right. So that, that that's my take on, on, on that topic. But just to quickly transition to the next topic about like uh, our schools and the students not really receiving proper education and teachers going on strike. Uh, if you guys didn't know this past week, it's been a shit show for the U.S. education system. Earlier this week, uh, Chicago teachers, the union, uh, they went on a leave of absence or, or you could say a temporary strike uh, because they did not feel that the classrooms were designed to be safe for students and themselves. And uh, this forced thousands of kids to miss almost up to a week of school because they couldn't reach an agreement on the proper protocols being taken in the classrooms. Now, in fairness to the teachers, kids were testing positive left and right and having to be sent home, and there was no control of the situation. So I get that. I think the real reason that teachers went on strike in Chicago especially was just because simply they're just fed up at this point. You know, there are teachers that still buy their own school supplies for their classroom. There are teachers that have pre-existing conditions that if they do catch COVID, whether they're vaccinated or non-vaccinated, you know, it could result in hospitalization or even worse, death. And there are teachers, you know, who have to deal with the dysfunction of the children who don't have like a steady, you know, home. So when that way, if they come to class one week, and then they're doing remote learning the next week, there's going to be a lot of behavioral issues in these students. And that becomes frustrating, not only for the teacher, but also the student. So there's a lot of confusion. Um, I think there's a lot of anger, a lot of mistrust between teachers, parents, students, the Board of Education. And the only solution I could really think of is, you know, I don't want to say it's an easy solution, but it's a simple one, right? It's shut down the schools just for two weeks. That's it. I'm just asking for a two-week shutdown until we see, you know, uh, the country gets better and we see the spread goes down and the peak isn't as as easy. And I know that's easy for me to say because um, I'm not going to have any repercussions because I'm not in any position of power or anything like that. But we all, you know... From this past month, we had coworkers call out of work. You're seeing a dramatic change in the workforce of people 
just not being able to show up to work and live how they should. And companies aren't being as productive as they should be. And businesses I know are shutting down will cost you lots of money. But I know for the school system, shutting down means kids are probably going to have to have some type of babysitter or parents stay at home and make some type of arrangement. And I know it's going to be tough. I don't have any children. Thank goodness. But, you know, you can't have a society where we're sending kids into classrooms. You know, we're playing tag with this virus and teachers can't teach effectively. They have no support. Uh, the classrooms, they can't. you can't have half the classroom in person and then half the classroom virtual. Like, that's not effective. And if you really pay attention to, like, this younger generation especially, these kids really cannot afford to miss any time in class. I call this generation, who like, between 5 and, like, 13-year-olds, they're the screen generation. So most of these kids have had a screen in their hands since they were a baby. These children are so used to having a screen in front of them that they lack social skills and human interaction skills. So the long-term goal is to have children back in the classroom. That is obviously the long-term goal. But the short-term goal is like, yo, let's reset, wait for this wave to die down. Let's make sure when we return to the classroom, no one is putting any other person at risk. And I know this is is not an easy fix in any manner, but a lot of these kids, you know, if you put like a, a math problem or a book in front of them, they're going to struggle to get through it. I'm not going to lie. Like their reading skills and their comprehension skills aren't all there. And I think this generation needs the classroom more than any other generation that has existed. One thing I see the difference with a lot of these kids is critical thinking. A lot of them don't know how to get from point A to point Z without someone share, showing them the answer or telling them how to do it. Like the answers are all always there for them. They don't know how to think for themselves. And um, I would say like, it, it's, a, it's a developed skill, right? Like we had to develop that as uh, teenagers ourselves. Like we had a lot of problem solving things that we had to do. I feel like the problem solving isn't there. And this skill is critical when you become an adult, right? You adversely deal with multiple problems at once without being overwhelmed. And I think, you know, going forward, I don't, I don't know what date they should do this, but they need to make the vaccine mandatory for schools, just like every other vaccine, right? It's like when you get vaccinated for meningitis or tuberculosis or polio and all these other diseases, you shouldn't have, you should have to have a vaccine for COVID to return to the classroom. So that way teachers, you know, are, aren't are feeling like the threat of the virus is, you know, in front of them. Uh, children could go to uh, class safely without, you know, trying to bring the virus home unintentionally. And it's just the guidelines just have to be better. So that would be my suggestion just to solve this temporary problem. Obviously, it's going to be ongoing and linger for a while, but... In my opinion, if you really want to get students back to class, you got to really take a break right now for two weeks. Wait till everyone, you know, recovers from COVID or this COVID peak, like I said, dies down. And then we can start bringing people back and incorporating a real classroom environment. Uh, the last but not the least um, thing I want to talk about. So I asked you guys on Instagram, 
what topic would you like for me to discuss? Only one person responded. That's fine. Y'all niggas don't fuck with me. It's whatever. But uh, he used to be one of my co-workers, my former co-worker. And uh, he's like, yo, you should talk about the impact Bell Hooks, she's an author, by the way, has had on the way we view masculinity in the black community. And I replied to them saying, I see why you have a therapist, right? Not to not to be funny or some shit, but like, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Bell Hooks, she's a very, she just passed away, like not too long ago, but she's a very accomplished author and she illustrates uh, feminism very, very well, articulate, articulates it very well. And she wrote a lot about re-sculpting, reimagining the Black household, uh, especially masculinity in particular for Black men. So from what I know uh, about her, uh, she had like a, a troubling like upbringing, right? She had a toxic father growing up, and this kind of affected her in countless ways that reshaped her imagination of how the Black household should be and how Black women should view themselves and how Black men should also view themselves. So here's my take. When it comes to masculinity, I don't believe in such thing as toxic masculinity. I don't believe in a such thing as healthy masculinity. Masculinity is masculinity. All right? So let me just go further with it. So I think masculinity should be defined by the man and not by the society he lives in. And it shouldn't be defined by his family members or the people he surrounds himself with. Just because a man isn't following the standards of what society has, you know, planned for them, doesn't make them any more or less manly. And he doesn't have to follow the social norms that fit any idea of masculinity that is put upon him. And there are men out there who like building stuff, engineering, crafting, working out a lot, that's fantastic. I respect that masculinity. But there's also men out there who are more reserved. You know, they like reading, they like writing, they like painting, they like playing an instrument. It doesn't subtract from their masculinity. If anything, I could argue it heightens their masculinity. So bell hooks, I understand she grew up in an era where black men were taught to be this brawn, tough exterior and not to show any emotions or else we would be perceived as weak. And we all know today that is not true or and that's not the case at all. In fact, you know, uh, it's more manly, in my opinion, when you show emotion and you're able to communicate emotionally with your sons, your daughters and your family members. And I feel like you're more in touch with your soul and not so much the parents you're trying to have people have of you. So quick story. Uh, Some years ago, I was out in New York somewhere and I had this this small little exchange with this gay guy. Right. And he was telling me stories of him just being treated like a woman by his like family member. Right. And he he didn't like the fact because he was like, you know, I'm still a man like. And society, he felt like society and his family was trying to strip him of his manhood because he was gay. And he was like, you know, just because I'm gay uh, doesn't mean I'm a, I'm a woman. And the point he was trying to make was his sexuality doesn't make him any less of a man. If anything, his manhood comes first, his sexuality comes second after that. 
so the point I'm making is men today can't allow society to classify what we define as masculinity. You know, we all live in a different experience from each other. We all have different things going on in our lives around this world. And you just can't put all the men in the world under this giant umbrella of masculinity and what your definition of it is. You know, we're all holding our own umbrellas, trying to navigate and define ourselves and our being. So I don't agree with uh, Bell Hook's ideas of what she defines as masculinity, especially for black community, because I feel like we're always finding out new things about black men. There are the, the black like trans community now is like a huge deal. Like we that was like taboo to speak about, you know, even 10 years ago. So it's, it's a, always a changing, transforming idea of what masculinity is. And I don't want anyone to define what my masculinity is, especially, you know, uh, a woman, another man, society. I, def- I define my masculinity. And if someone doesn't agree with that, that's fine. They could live their own idea of masculinity. But I'm not going to have someone else define uh, my lifestyle. All right, so I'm going to wrap the pot up with that. Uh, thank you guys for listening to the Bleezy Show. I really do appreciate you guys. I will have more fun, more controversial topics to talk about next time. Don't you worry. But I really appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, everyone have a safe weekend. Uh, enjoy yourselves. And Oh, it's MLK Day on Monday. Hey. All right, so yeah, I'm about to have a two, three-day weekend. All right, so everybody, like I said, have a great weekend. Tune into the next episode of The Bleezy Show. I will catch you guys later. Peace out. I'm just a man trying to have my own plan. I'm just a man trying to understand. I'm just a man sleeping like the same man. I'm just a man doing what I really can. I'm just a man. They forcing my hand, I'm just a man, don't know where I'ma land, I'm just a man, no one cares what I'm saying, I'm just a man, don't fuck with me, stop playing, I'm just a man, about to jump off this plane, I'm just a man, trying to save the planet, I'm just a man, living in my own head, I'm just a man, I don't have a lot of fans, I'm just a man, Leader of my own band, I'm just a man, and no one understands. I'm just a man, 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 I'm just a man.